the government opened, they call them like people's food stores. They were basically selling onion, potatoes and things like that at a cut price because the food prices are going up and up. People are really struggling. So they opened up these places. It's clearly like vote buying almost. It made me really sad. There were just these huge queues of clearly very, very poor people queuing up. And then the morning after the elections, they just shut them. I walked past one one morning and there were all these poor old people wondering why it wasn't open. Hello there and welcome back to the Oxford PPE Society podcast. We are releasing these episodes every Friday at 9am until the end of Trinity term in June and you can find them via our website, our SoundCloud or our Facebook page. Every week we will be in discussion with leading figures from the fields of philosophy, politics or economics. We hope that they will provide regular enjoyment in these uncertain times. I'm Leon Asgau and this week I'm joined by the esteemed British journalist Hannah Lucinda Smith. Hannah is the Times' foreign correspondent in Turkey and has been living in the region since 2013, during the Syrian civil war. She initially travelled to Turkey with the intention of moving on to Syria to cover the conflict, but soon turned her attention to the burgeoning divisions within Turkey itself. Since her arrival, Turkey has experienced monumental change in its political institutions and international standing. In 2013, Turkey appeared to be a modernising nation, with European aspirations led by a pacifying and moderate leader. It has always been a region of huge strategic significance to Western states, recently serving as a bulwark against Islamic fundamentalism and Russian expansionism. However, Erdogan's increasing closeness to Russian President Vladimir Putin, his attacks on Kurdish forces known as the PKK, who are allies in the fight against ISIS, and the growing number of human rights abuses in Turkey have led to a hardening of relations between Turkey and the EU and NATO, with many describing him as a populist dictator. Hannah's book, Erdogan Rising, locates this controversial figure within Turkey's myriad religious, cultural and political traditions. She explains his rise to near total domination of government through a populist campaign and an authoritarian streak and the precarious foundations of his popularity today. But I wanted to start off right at the beginning as I asked her about Erdogan's early political successes and the broad coalition which then supported him. Well, Erdogan comes from an Islamist political tradition. So he started out in a party called the Milli Salamin Partisi, the National Salvation Party that was in the 1970s, which was, I mean, it was an overtly Islamist party and he came up through the youth ranks. That party was shut down after the 1980 coup, as all parties were. But what tended to happen in the kind of first decades of the Republic is that these very overtly Islamist parties would open up and would function for a certain amount of time and then either there would be a coup d'etat and they'd be shut down or they'd be shut down by a decision of the court. But every time that happened, they would then reopen as soon as they could with a different name, but basically exactly the same people. So that's what happened after the 1980 coup. The Militalamed party started up again as the Refa party, welfare party, and Erdogan rejoined. And that's when he really started rising through the ranks. His big breakthrough came in 1994 with the Refa party when he became mayor of Istanbul. If you look back at news cuttings from that time, as I did when I was researching the book, you see the kind of rhetoric and the kind of language that was being used about Erdogan at that time. You know, there were people who were saying, this is the end of secularism in Turkey. You know, this is the Islamists have won, the fundamentalists have won. And the interesting thing was, actually, I think he realised how insecure his position was. And in kind of very early part of 
him taking the mayorship of Istanbul, he tried to be quite conciliatory. So he tried to sort of, you know, say that he was going to not rule Istanbul on Istanbul's principles. No one was going to lose their job for disagreeing with him on matters of religion. But pretty quickly, Inner Erdogan came out. So in 1997, he was at a rally um, in eastern Turkey, and he read out a poem. It's a kind of Islamist nationalist poem, and it talks about the mosques are our barracks and the minarets are our bayonets, all very strong language invoking God and nationalism. And he was judged to have been provoking religious hatred, and he was sent to prison for it. When several years later, he then broke onto the national political stage, I think those experiences stayed with him. And I think that's why in the early years of his tenure, first as prime minister, he actually really played down that aspect of his politics. He was far more focused on almost presenting himself as an almost liberal politician liberal in the sense that he presents himself as the man who was going to tame the army who had had such an influence in Turkish politics. When he talked about more religious freedom for the more pious section of Turkish society, he framed it in a way that secular liberals could also get behind. He framed it not as an issue of religious conviction, but as an issue of liberalism that, for example, women should be allowed to wear the headscarves in the universities, should be allowed to wear the headscarves in public office. And by doing that, he managed to build a coalition of people around him in the AKP. When you look at the AKP in the early years, it was a really broad church, and they actually brought in a lot of people from the other parties, both from nationalist centre-right parties, but also even from parties like the CHP, the Aztec's party, the centre-leftist, social democrat, secularist party. There were people who crossed the floor to join the AKP from that party. And, you know, in comparison to parties like the CHP, it looked like the liberalising party at that time. It was only in later years, I think, when Erdogan began to feel really secure in his position, and particularly after, I think it was 2010 parliamentary elections, when he won a third term in the parliament when you really started to feel that his true core beliefs which i do think are centered around islam and religion fundamentally started to come out more you mentioned that early on in his political career he had to expand beyond a base of religious conservatives how should we look at all the different cleavages that there are in turkey's political culture I mean, Turkey's a really complex country. I think the trap that a lot of people who are looking at Turkey fall into, and it's hard not to fall into this because it is the most visible and obvious cleavage, is this cleavage between religiously conservative people and secular people. But it's never that simple. I always get really mad when I read articles by journalists who seem to think that you can tell the political affiliation of a woman by what she's wearing on her head. You can't, but there's no question that there is a culture war over symbols like the headscarf that stems back to when Ataturk founded the Republic and made certain reforms, such as the hat law. So it wasn't only trying to discourage women from wearing the headscarf. He also wanted men to stop wearing the fairs. It actually became illegal to wear the fairs. And people were executed for that, you know, in the early years of the Republic. So yeah, there's this culture war. And on the one hand, Turkey is a country where When you're walking around the streets of Istanbul, you'll see groups of teenage friends, maybe three girls, one will be wearing a headscarf and two won't. So I don't want to make it sound like the country's split completely along these lines, but certainly there is this cleavage which can be used and played up by politicians, politicians like Erdogan. One really, really interesting thing that I found, for example, during the local elections last year, when so these were elections when Erdogan's party lost Istanbul, it lost to some other major cities as well, but Istanbul particularly very important. 
he actually tried to have a rerun of the election. Now, the really interesting thing here was when I was going out and talking to the people that you would pass as religiously conservative, and particularly the women who wear the headscarf, the women over a certain age, so I would say my age and old, so I'm 36, so yes, yeah, so like mid-30s upwards, they still saw politics in this binary sense. They would say to me, for example, that they are genuinely concerned that if the CHP retook power at a national level, that the headscarf ban would be reintroduced in Turkish universities and in the public sector. And, you know, this is something that Erdogan and his people play up to. You know, they want to present themselves as the saviour of women like that. You know, they want to say, remember the bad old days, remember how it was before we came. The interesting thing is that women, headscarfed women who are younger, and particularly those who are in their kind of late teens, early 20s, who don't remember anything before the Erdogan era. They don't have this trauma that older women have of having to take your headscarf off to go to university or being, you know, shamed by a lecturer because you're wearing a headscarf. And they just don't see the culture war in the same way. And I think this is what I say when I mean it's a complicated country. You know, not everyone sees these things in the same way. I'm certainly very aware of the fact that just because a woman is wearing a headscarf doesn't necessarily mean that she's an Erdogan supporter. Just because somebody is religiously, personally pious doesn't mean they're an Erdogan supporter. I think this is becoming more and more true because the things that Erdogan and his government are doing, particularly domestically and particularly in terms of large-scale corruption, the handing of contracts to their cronies, their personal enrichment, religious people look at it and go, well, how are they true believers? I think it certainly is important, this division of society, but it's not the kind of be-all and end-all, and you can't make assumptions based on it, you have to scratch a bit deeper. Young people seem to have very different views on the role of religious policy. Do you think this is a significant divide, and is it a threat to Erdogan's popularity? I think so, and I think it's not just something that's specific to Turkey. There's been some really interesting work done over the past two years across the whole of the Middle East, which is showing that the younger generation are just getting more and more disillusioned with religious politics. And I think that is a result of, I mean, clearly in Iraq, they have the experience of living under ISIS. And I've not been to Mosul since since ISIS was pushed out, but colleagues who have always say they're really struck by the amount of bars and restaurants serving alcohol there are now, like far more than there were before. Because it's like when you've had this really fundamentalist regime that is sucking the joy out of everything in the name of religion, then it's logical that what happens once they've gone is that there's a kickback against it. And I think, firstly, young people are just really sick of it. And secondly, there's the internet now. I mean, almost everyone has internet across the Middle East. You know, everyone has social media accounts and they're talking with people their age from all over the world. These kind of regimes can't control the message as they could 20 years ago. And I just think that since the Arab Spring, The Arab Spring was jumped on and captured by Islamist factions. The Muslim Brotherhood completely exploited those Arab Spring revolutions. Islamist politics in Turkey has just been shown to be an absolute shambles. ISIS in Iraq, people just have seen, it's been shown in practice that this politics doesn't work. It doesn't make life nicer for anyone. So I don't think Turkey is unique in this. I think that across the whole Islamic world, or across particularly like this part of the Islamic world, Islamist politics has been tried and failed. And to be honest, I think Erdogan's era is over. I don't think anyone of this generation will be ready to have this kind of politics again. When views like that are so easy to come by, how, how much does the government rely on these things that Erdogan was actually quite quick to adopt and manipulate, like social media and communications? 
No, it, it's really important. It's really important. I mean, if you look at the traditional media in Turkey, there's six main television news channels. Only one of them is anyway independent. Fox News. Similarly, if you go out and look on the newsstands, there are a couple of exceptions, but it's almost like the headlines are like cut and paste between each other. The control that he's got with the media at this point is absolutely huge. Again, with younger people and more educated people, this doesn't wash because they just stop watching state television or reading newspapers. I mean, most people, when, when you talk to people in Turkey, if you say, do you read a newspaper? They would laugh at you and say, no, they're all bollocks. They just lie. And so they go to social media now for their news. Now, there's upsides and downsides to that. There's On the upside, there are some really good social media-based news initiatives that have started in Turkey. There's one called Mediascope. There's a new one that started called Devar, which is run by journalists who have been sacked from a lot of other newspapers. On the other hand, it's not great when you have general mistrust in the media because then you get this atmosphere of, well, they're all lying. And that's when conspiracy theory and you know propaganda can creep in through the back door. But I think for the less... It's going to sound a bit patronising here, but less savvy people, probably the people who don't live in cities, the people who don't have internet because there are still people who don't have it. So again, particularly older people, you know, older people are less likely to be using social media and have a smartphone, things like that. And then the other kind of split in that sense that I find interesting is the difference between Turks who can speak even a little bit of English and those who speak none at all. Because as soon as you can speak a little bit or like enough to have a look at the BBC or to look at what foreign journalists are writing about Turkey, then you see that, hang on, this narrative that is coming from our newspapers and our television channels is completely different to what the rest of the world is saying. Do they have a different perception as to what brand Erdogan even is? Is what Erdogan presents to these people completely different to what he presents to other demographic groups? I always find it really funny when I go to his rallies and people always say to me like, oh, he's junior leader, he's the world leader, he's the world leader. And they genuinely believe it, you know, and I'm not cruel enough to st- or stupid enough to stand in the middle of an Erdogan rally and say like, no, the rest of the world laughs at him. They genuinely think that he commands this huge respect. The other interesting thing in that sense is how he markets himself in Arabic speaking countries and in places like Malaysia and Pakistan. So broadly, governments that are following a kind of Islamist politics that's similar to Erdogan, so the very sort of like brotherhood style. Malaysia, Pakistan, obviously not Egypt now, um, Qatar, you'll find no end of social media sites that are in Arabic or in Urdu that, I mean, clearly are probably set up by Erdogan's propagandists. I'm sure these are not organic things, but there is a concerted effort to promote his image in these countries as a leader who's standing up to the West, who is really changing things for Turkey and who is a model for the leaders from those countries. And so one of the really amazing things for me is when I write an article that's critical of him, it isn't Turks who are arguing back against me on social media. It's like people from Pakistan who are going, why are you lying about Erdogan? Turkey now is stronger than it's ever been. I'm like, are you crazy? Like, look at the economic figures. There's clearly a kind of concerted effort going on to keep up this image of him as a leader who's not only doing very well domestically but is somehow I don't know showing the rest of the world exactly what's what. Where do these people fit into the broader Erdogan coalition? What sort of people has he tried to bring together? 
Well, I think at this point, I don't really think we can talk about a coalition in the same sense as in the early days. What's happened with him taking control of national politics has also happened within the party. You find that at this point, actually all the people he co-founded the party with have left and there's some obsessed at rival parties and all the kind of people who were in that sort of coalition in the early years have also left. If we're talking about his support base rather than the party, I think in the support base, you've got basically people who genuinely think that he is some kind of messiah. Usually their kind of loyalty to him is at least partly based on religion. They see the world in the same way that he does. And then in the party, I mean, it's a typical authoritarian way. So, I mean, the people who he surrounds himself with now are just yes men. Everyone who's in that circle now is there because they're completely loyal. It's a party of opportunists yes men and sycophants at this point and I think the other people who might stick by him then are also the businessmen who are getting like patronage from him basically people who are getting benefits we can't really talk about it being a party of coalition anymore now if we're talking about how the party is governing it's in a coalition with the MHP which is the hard nationalist party the AKP wouldn't be able to control the parliament without the MHP at this point as Erdogan has become more authoritarian and driven away those people, the liberals broadly, who were in coalition with him at the start or who supported him or who backed him for whatever reasons, as he's lost those people, the people who've replaced them are the hardcore nationalists. Now, I don't know if you've been following what happened in Turkey over the past few days. The interior minister, Suleyman Soylu, he is not originally from the AKP. He started out in the Duryul Party, the True Path Party, in the 1990s, later became the Democrat Party. Now, this is a right-wing party. It was under them that the worst things happened in the Kurdish regions in the 1990s. Soylu came into the party, didn't have his own support base in the party, but he is supported by the nationalists. And he's made the MHP, who the AKP is in coalition with, Exceptionally happy because as interior minister, he's overseen the military operations or police operations against the Kurds over the past few years, against, sorry, against the PKK, I should say. And, you know, I think looking at what happens this weekend, so he offered his resignation. Devlet Bacheli, who is the leader of the MHP, then threw his weight publicly behind Sulu. And then Erdogan said, I am not accepting this resignation. Now, that tells you everything that you need to know about where the power lies now in Turkey, within that coalition. Erdogan basically did what the MHP wanted. And Soylu, by offering his resignation and not having it accepted, has shown his own power. He's in a stronger position than he was before he offered to resign. This is the kind of coalition that we've got now. We've got an Islamist nationalist coalition with the nationalists with the upper hand. Whereas 17 years ago when Erdogan came to power, it was a Islamist in coalition with social democrats, social liberals. That's how he's kind of shape-shifted over time. A couple of months ago in December 2019, a former prime minister of his, Dubatolu, uh, formed a rival political party. Do you think that that will chip away at Erdogan's popularity? Might it further change his reliance on other groups? Yeah, I think it's crucial. I mean, if you look at elections in Turkey, winning elections is a matter of percentage points. In Parliament, the AKP, it can't survive without the MHP. Even in that coalition, it's tight. And again, when it comes to presidential elections, it's a matter of one or two percentage points. When you get people like Davutoglu, 
And also there's another major figure, Ali Babajan, who was, he used to be the deputy prime minister, but he had special oversight over the economy. He's also left and formed his own new party. Now, they're not going to win an election. These parties are not going to be forming the next government. But what they can certainly do is that they can peel away some of the AKP support. So particularly when Davitolu formed his new party, I started talking to some rank and file people and they were saying a lot of them had got messages and had approaches to join that party. And they were thinking about it. For the people in the AKP who supported the AKP because they're genuinely pious, I mean, they feel incredibly uncomfortable seeing a president enriching himself while much of the country is suffering economically. If these parties can even peel away 1%, 2% of the AKP's vote, that's significant. That's the kind of margins we're dealing with. It took them a long time to do it. That's the only thing I will say. I mean, Davitolu was ousted as prime minister in 2016. And it was embarrassing, completely owned by Erdogan when that happened. It was shocking. And yet he did nothing. That's where it sort of lets them down. They'll take some people with them. But for most Turks, they think, well... Okay, Davitoli, you can talk about how important freedom of press is now, but where were you when the journalists were being taken to prison? He's kept quiet for this long. I can't see, certainly not Davitolu ever becoming a powerful figure in his own right again. Babajan, possibly, because he's got the economic uh, credentials. But I think they can be significant in peeling away support. There is good reason to speak about who might come after Erdogan. There has been growing talk recently about him falling out of touch with the electorate. I mean, he only won the referendum with 51% of the vote. Do you think his popularity is turning and might even be replaced by the next election in, in 2023? Yeah, I mean, it's clear that he's losing popularity and losing touch. People are really suffering economically in this country, really suffering. And people get very, very angry when he says things like, everyone give 10 lira to help like the coronavirus. You know, we're getting messages on our mobile phones constantly asking for this. And it's not a great look. Or, you know, before the virus crisis, making a big song and dance about manufacturing Turkey's first electric car, which is going to cost about, I don't know, twice the average annual wage of a Turk. I think he's lost his touch a bit. I do think he's lost his touch. Having said that, I would not want to write the guy off. He has proved himself to be exceptionally skilled at surviving, which is what politics is all about, isn't it? Politics is about the winning by whatever means in some cases. And he's managed that. And not only has he managed that, he's managed to do it in such a way that there is still a sizable chunk of people who say, well, but he wins elections. He's a sharp guy. He's very good at the game he plays. So I wouldn't want to write him off. But what I would say is that, you know, over the past couple of years, I get the sense that his box of tricks is running a bit low. So there are certain things that over the past few years he's retreated to again and again, whenever he's felt that he needs a bit of a kind of bump in approval. Foreign conflicts, perfect. Foreign rows rows with Germany, rows with America, war against the PKK. These things generally fail safe, fail safe for bumping the approval ratings. Now they're sort of not working that well anymore. You know, clearly his attempts trying to outsmart Putin have not worked. I think he's sort of running out of places to go. And then of course, the biggest problem for him is the economy which is doing absolutely horrendously. I was just looking at the exchange rate earlier. It's now about 6.8 to the dollar, 
which is crazy. They're still saying that they're not going to go to the IMF for a bailout because he's spent so much time over the past couple of years slinging insults at the IMF and every other international institution. Turks are suffering hugely because of the closure of businesses and things like that. I mean, how long can it go on for? Does this become even more significant with the perception of corruption? The Getty Park protests in 2013 showed the strength of force against this, and I can't imagine the perception has improved much since then. Yeah, I think it has. During the local elections last year, there was just one awful thing that they did. While campaigning was going along before the first round of elections in March, the government opened, I think they called them like people's food stalls or something like that. They were basically selling onion, potatoes and things like that at a cut price because the food prices are going up and up. Like the inflation's insane. People are really struggling. So they opened up these places. It's clearly like vote buying almost because it's done by central government. It made me really sad. There were just these huge queues of clearly very, very poor people queuing up. And then the morning after the elections, they just shut them. And I walked past one one morning and there were all these poor old people wondering why it wasn't open. At a local level, the AKP has always used welfare as a way to gather support. And I'm sure that in many areas on a local level, that's still happening. Like I'm sure in the Anatolian heartlands, that's still going on on a local level. But in places like Istanbul, where things like this are happening, I just don't think it washes anymore. I suppose international engagements, foreign policy, is one of the ways Erdogan bumps up his polling. And Syria and the PKK, the Kurds, are a big part of that. What's the general strategy here? I don't think there is one. The original kind of grand plan for AKP foreign policy came from Davutoglu. And here's another reason why I think he can never make it back into the mainstream, because Turks blame him for the mess that Turkey is in internationally. Davutoglu's thinking of where Turkey should go was really kind of based on brotherhood-type ideas, uh, the idea that it should restate its influence in the old Ottoman lands, not by force, but by soft power, which was all working very nicely, I think, until the Arab Spring. I think the early successes of brotherhood factions in Egypt and in Tunisia and in Libya emboldened Davutoglu and particularly emboldened Erdogan. And I think they thought that that was what was also going to happen in Syria. And to be fair to them, I thought that was what was going to happen too. Like when I first started reporting on Syria, I really believed that it was going to be a war that we were going to see over within a few months. The way that it was going to end was we were going to be riding into Damascus with the rebels. Assad was going to be overthrown and there was going to be some kind of brotherhood-dominated government replacing him. Now, as soon as ISIS emerged and the US really started backing away from the Syrian opposition, it became really clear that that wasn't going to happen. And I think Turkey just didn't get the memo for several years. When I first started covering Syria, there was so many countries backing the opposition in different ways. Turkey, the US, the UK, France, Qatar, Saudi you know, very, very openly backing the opposition. And, you know, one by one, they all kind of backed away. Turkey dug its heels in and it kept on backing the opposition. Look what's happened. We're now in a situation where, I mean, if you trust the government's figures, you've got 3.5 million Syrians living in Turkey. Many of them, I want to make really clear that I'm not blaming this on the Syrians themselves, but many of them not speaking any Turkish, living in ghettoized communities, 
working under the table for lower rates than Turks will accept. That causes huge resentment for the Turks who are at the lowest end of the scale. I mean, it's the same dynamic that you find everywhere. You find it in the UK, etc. It's not middle class people. You know, I, I don't care if a load of Polish builders come to the UK because I'm not a builder myself. You know, they're not vying for the journalist jobs. But of course, the people who are at the lowest end of the economic spectrum see it as a threat. This is a major problem for Erdogan at this point. And what's really interesting is that over the past year or so, his rhetoric about Syrians has shifted. Back in the early years, I remember he really played on this thing of, you know, the pious Turks being the most humanitarian and being the ones who are welcoming Syrians, whereas the CHP and the secularists were, you know, just terrible and wanted to throw them all back and had no humanitarian concerns, etc. And now he's, you know, saying, well, Syrians can't stay. Eventually, they're all going to have to go back. There's been multiple reports of Syrians basically being rounded up by the police in Istanbul and driven back and forth over the border. It's really, it's really blind back on him. How does this fit in with his foreign policy in the wider world, with Iran, between the US and Russia? How does he want to position Turkey internationally? What Turkey has always wanted to do, and where its strength has always been, is as a mediator country. I mean, it sits in the middle of many different regions, you know, Europe, the Caucasus, the old Soviet empire, the Middle East, Iran, you know, it's sitting in the middle of all this. And certainly 20 years ago, it was pretty unique in that it was one of the few Muslim countries that had great relations with Israel. So it was always very good at being a kind of mediator these discussions or these arguments or these problems. I think it still wants to be that, but I just don't think it has the diplomatic skill anymore. I mean, when your leader is, to say the least, not a natural born diplomat, and really I think he's a guy who is quite naive about the world. I think he's very, very smart and very, very canny in Turkey. I think he has got an innate and excellent grasp of his people and his country. And that's what's got him so far. But I think when it comes to the wider world, I don't think he really understands how it works. Not properly. And I think he got away with it in the early days because he was willing to listen to people who did get it. And he surrounded himself with people who did get it. So one of the you know, things that really stuck in my mind when I was talking to um, a Western diplomat who'd worked in Turkey back in the early years, he said, well, back in the early 2000s, when Erdogan showed up to a meeting, he would have like a stack of note cards with him. And every politician has their limitations, but the skill is knowing what your limitations are, right? And surrounding yourself with people who can help you out. But I think now, and this goes hand in hand with the kind of narrowing down of his circle and the purges that he's done of his circle. I think certainly if you look at the diplomatic corps as well, there's been an increasing number of Erdogan loyalists appointed to certain positions. You can really see that in Turkey's loss of standing in the world. I just don't think he's got the skill to be the world player that he wants to be. His natural instinct is to be the Black Sea Mafia guy, which you can pull off in Turkey, but you can't pull off at the G20 and you can't pull off at NATO meetings. The US relationship in particular has been really dented in the past four or five years. And one of the interesting moments of that is the Reza Zarab arrest, who has been tried for circumventing sanctions on Iran. What is the story behind this? The Help Bank trial is meant to be going to be caught in the US at the moment. And it's been held up for all kinds of reasons. At some point, Turkey was just refusing to accept the court documents. It just literally wouldn't accept them from the FedEx guy, which meant the court case couldn't get underway. 
it's clear that Trump and Kushner are trying to hold off that case. I think that's really, really clear because if Halk Bank was sanctioned, it's a Turkish state bank that's going to be like an extra blow to the economy. I think Trump sees something of a kindred spirit in Erdogan. I think he genuinely quite likes him. But also, I don't think Trump sees it in America's interest to push Turkey into full-blown collapse. It's weird because it's all to do with sort of Turkish state-sanctioned embargo busting, like Iranian embargo busting, which is... Trump seems to love sanctioning Iran. So you know, it's quite weird that he's sort of letting Turkey get away with this. But the root of the problem is the US supports the Kurdish factions in Syria. I mean, that's not only for Erdogan, but I think for Turks generally, that's something that they can't get over. I think Turkey feels very betrayed by the way that the US fought very hard to bring Turkey on side against Assad in the early years of the Syrian conflict and then backed away from the opposition just as Turkey was really starting to wholeheartedly support it. I think there are multiple problems, but weirdly the help bank case is probably the least of them. I suppose the Kurds would be one of the more significant. What does Erdogan want from these peoples, this region? How do they feature in his vision of the Turkish state more generally? I mean, I think it's a means to an end for him because actually you know, the interesting interesting thing about Erdogan is when you look at, again, the early part of his, his tenure at a national level, I mean, no one's done more actually than Erdogan at that time to put to bed the problems that Kurdish people have faced since the start of the Republic. This is something that was baked in at the founding of the Turkish Republic, this idea that there is one way to be Turkish. This kind of nationalising project by Ataturk, that's the root of it. And actually, Erdogan in his early years, when he took an Ottoman understanding that this is a country or a region of distinct ethnic groups and even religious groups, but that they can function together. That's the kind of pluralistic view that he took in his early years. And that served him to a point. I mean, it got him a huge amount of Kurdish vote. He only started a peace process with the PKK. There was a ceasefire that started. If you go to the Kurdish region, after everything that's happened, people will still say that he went further than most other Turkish leaders in trying to make a settlement. Clearly, as soon as that no longer served him, he went in completely the other direction. So after 2015, when he started entering into this coalition with the MHP, MHP are never going to tolerate openings to Kurdish politics or any kind of openings to people who they see as being linked to the PKK or propagating the PKK's ideas. That was the point when things really started to fall apart. I mean, I genuinely think that if he thought that making overtures to the Kurds again was the best way to keep him in power, he would do that. I don't think that everything that he's done in the east of Turkey and in Syria in recent years, you know, I don't think that comes from him having a personal desire to kill lots of Kurds or to, you know, beat them into submission or to, what? no, I, I, I think his number one aim is staying in power and by any means necessary. And the fact is, you know, Kurds comprised, I think, a fifth of the Turkish population. It's a huge chunk. So back in the early days, there were places... I think overall he would get about 50% of the vote in the Kurdish regions. You know, that's a, that's a huge amount of support. I think that's his view towards them. The number one priority of clinging onto power is quite a neat lead onto the coup attempt. It felt like quite a sudden thing watching from abroad. Did it feel more expected in Istanbul in some senses? Um, it didn't feel expected in, you know, that particular form, certainly. 
I've certainly never spoken to anybody who said, well, yeah, I knew that was going to happen. Um, but there was a feeling that something was going to happen, for sure. I think from the start of 2016, it was a time of a lot of chaos in Turkey. There were terror attacks all the time, both by PKK and by ISIS. Things just happening all the time, disaster after disaster. And there was a feeling that something something was going to happen. If you told me on the 14th of July that the Gulenists were going to organise a coup, I wouldn't have believed you. I think it is clear that the Gulenists were at the centre of it, but it caught us all completely, completely by surprise. The Gulenists are a really interesting dimension of Turkish politics, and obviously they used to be allied to Erdogan. What's their story over the past two decades or so in Turkish politics? So this sounds really conspiratorial when you sort of say it out loud, but I always say, imagine them as a cross between the Freemasons and the Muslim Brotherhood. Usually when I, I wrote this one time, I got complaints from the Gilanists, the Freemasons and Brotherhood people, so I managed to make more angry with that. But, um, but yeah, it's a network of business people and people who rank highly in the judiciary and the police and in the state institutions, very well educated often have been to Gulenist-run private schools. That's how they kind of recruited and found new members as they ran private schools and university dorms. They were around for years. They get their name from the man they follow, who's called Fethullah Gulen. He was an imam. Um, he was trained by the state to be an imam in a state mosque. But then he kind of went freelance. He started preaching in town squares, and, and he built up this following. And he went into exile in the States in the late 90s after, after the coup of 97. Has never been back to Turkey since. But his followers were really influential in Turkish society and everyone kind of knew about them. When I first moved to Turkey, there were Gurnist schools everywhere and they were sort of semi-open. And actually, you know, Erdogan, when he first came to power, or when the AKP first came to power, what they didn't have was an institutional network. You don't have in Turkey the kind of culture of a non-politicized civil service. It's always been politicized. And of course, thanks to the history of Turkey, it's been mostly dominated by kind of CHP type people, you know, secularist, nationalist, old Turkish elites, the very elites that Erdogan and his party were meant to be the antidote to. So he had no kind of institutional power. And this is what the Gulenists were really useful for, for Erdogan, because by making a kind of alliance with them, the AKP could have some kind of control or some kind of influence within the institutions, within the judiciary and within the police, etc., etc. Now, as always happens when you have two very big egos in one relationship, eventually it ends in a bust up and that's what happened. So this was the kind of root of the Razor's Arab case. It's still not entirely clear or entirely definite why Gilen decided to move against Erdogan in 2013. But in late 2013, Gilenist police chiefs started an investigation into Iranian sanctions busting that involved Erdogan's son and the sons of several other ministers and Basically, it's, you know, went all the way to the top. It nearly toppled Erdogan's government. That was December 2013. Um, and then from that moment, I mean, Erdogan basically sacked all the police chiefs, dismissed all the people from his party who were saying that, you know, this needs to be properly investigated and heads need to roll. So he purged all those people from his party. And then I think it was 2015, the Gulenists were listed as a terrorist organisation in Turkey. Already by then, 
several of the really high level Gurnist businessmen had either gone into exile or they'd been arrested. Their businesses had been seized, their newspapers had been seized. So their newspapers, having been fairly consistent supporters of Erdogan for years and years and years, had suddenly overnight become opposition voices <laughs> when Erdogan and Gulen fell out. Finally, the kind of finale was the coup attempt. And of course, they failed. How close was it to succeeding? Pretty close. Yeah, pretty close. Erdogan was in his private jet circling the skies above Turkey with the call sign turned off with rogue F-16 pilots tracking him. He'd been on holiday when it all kicked off and there's video footage of commandos bursting into their hotel about half an hour after he'd left his private jet with an order to kill him or they had taken dead or alive so it was pretty touch and go and certainly on that night obviously you kind of press people who you talk to in the government i won't forget the kind of fear in their voice and their messages people who say oh well it was all staged well, no it just wasn't i can assure you it wasn't given that context it's easy to understand the government response giving himself such immense powers and the state of emergency and more in the referendum as well would you say he's recovered from that politically now and that he now dominates the political scene. Constitutionally, he's now got total power. I mean, look at that constitution, it's one-man rule. He rules by decree. In terms of his, his power as a populist, yeah, there was definitely a spike, I would say, for a good few months after that, because even sort of friends of mine who are diehard liberals, not Erdogan people, the thought of having a junta ruling the country, I mean, just no. Turkey's had a lot of experience of that, and it's never good. It's not good for anyone. First few weeks, people were just, Phew, okay, we've avoided that. I think people were really angry at the Gulenists for trying to pull this. But, so first of all, you know, doing that constitutional referendum when Turkey was still under a state of emergency didn't sit well. And then also the scale of the arrests within a couple of years. I don't think there's anyone in Turkey now who doesn't know somebody who hasn't lost their job. Everyone sees that it's not just coup plotters, it's also his opponents. So, yeah, his power slipped in that sense. And then also, although constitutionally it's one-man rule, as we were talking about earlier with the role that the MHP is playing, okay, Erdogan is the face of this, but I think we've seen this weekend just how much enthrall he is to the nationalists. We've seen very clearly that he cannot rule without them. This is Erdogan's Achilles heel now. How does he manage to balance the competing power centres within his government? I think at this point he has to keep proving to the nationalists that he is the best leader for them to achieve their aims. How do you think this will all play out over the next three years? In 2023, what do you think we'll be waking up to on election day? I hate making predictions. <laughs> um, it's really difficult to say. I mean, I don't think he's going anywhere soon. All these people who, every time there's a minor blip, say, oh, this is the beginning of the end. It's, well, it's not. Look at the Constitution, man. He doesn't have to hold elections until 2023. As much as he's reliant on the nationalists for support, well, what else are the nationalists going to do? You know, what, what else are the MHP going to do? You know, Erdogan's the best bet for them at the moment. The only way that early elections could be called is if the AKP decided to do it, or if the MHP pull out the coalition and call them. They would have to have a decent reason to do that, and I don't think they have at the moment. 
Looking forward to the sort of shorter and more medium term, clearly the biggest issue for them at the moment is the economy. This is going to be the most pressing issue coming up. And I think this is where people like Ali Babajan might be able to start making some kind of dent in Erdogan's power, popularity. I mean, he's already fairly unpopular, but certainly I think this is going to be the most pressing issue for him. And that's something that will stick around for quite some time, because not only from the pandemic, but even before then, the economy was not in a great state at all, really, was it? It was weak anyway. It's been weak for a really long time. They've managed to find some kind of income for the central bank over the past few years, which I don't think are going to be forthcoming again, because the whole world's in a terrible state. And like I was saying before, when you're openly saying, well, we're not going to go to the IMF, well, what else are you going to do? You can't export anything really at the moment. This year is going to be a terrible tourist season for Turkey again. The problem is people will say like, oh, well, if the economy goes really bad, people will get on the streets and be overthrown. Well, that's not how it happens anyway. I mean, in order for street protests to overthrow a leader, the security services have to switch sides. That's how it happens. The leader doesn't look out of his palace window and go, oh, look at them all. I'm going to sit down. You have to have key parts of the security services switching sides and key powerful people switching sides and saying like, no, your time has come. And I can't see that happening. Secondly, people don't protest in Turkey anymore, really, because they are scared. Certainly since the coup attempt, there are parts of the security services that Erdogan has been beefing up and which increasingly appear to be loyal to him. And I think the fear is that if there was a mass protest on the street, then it might get very, very bloody. Certainly, this coronavirus is really exposing a lot of the flaws because, okay, they they announced a $15 billion aid package, but it's not really helpful a lot of the small business owners and people like that. Again, another parallel with Britain, it's a nation of small business owners, a nation of shopkeepers. $15 billion in the grand scheme of things in Turkey is not a huge sum. Yeah, it's not a lot. I mean, especially when he's living in the Thousand Room Palace. Turks do see these things in a slightly different way than we do as Brits. If a leader tried to pull that in Britain, then we wouldn't be having any of it. But in Turkey, they see it as your president living in a great house is a great pride for your country. They sort of see it in one way like that. But at the same time, thousand rooms, really, at a time when everyone else is suffering, it's not looking too good.